0: first lesson is <clears throat> taken from Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18, and can be found on page 1039. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone and he said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life then he said to them all whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What is good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The second reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 53 on page 740 in the Church Bibles and beginning at verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry land. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions Thanks be to
2: God. Thank you. So as we come together to reflect on God's Word that we've just read together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written Word of Scripture may now and always be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A keen young reporter attended the funeral of Nelson Rockefeller, at that time the richest man in America. The reporter was hoping for a story that would make a splash and also he hoped make his name. So he moved amongst the influential guests and asked what for him was the most important question. How much did he leave? And Back came the sombre reply, everything. If that sounds familiar, it's because I told this story a few weeks ago as an illustration when we were thinking about Jesus' story of the rich fool, the man so obsessed by the importance of his possessions that he gave no thought to God, or for that matter, anybody else. But having settled himself to a life of selfish luxury, he died leaving all that he would accumulated behind and it wasn't just possessions that he left behind he had also left memories although i doubt too many people would have thought about him with great affection and memories are i believe very important and on this remembrance sunday memories are at the very heart of our service. For later on, I'm sure we will say together these evocative words, we will remember them. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that that was both an active and a passive. For as we think about the sacrifice of those who've given their lives to protect our freedoms, especially if they are people who are known to us, we will remember with great gratitude and admiration, but this will remain a passive act unless we determine to ensure the active continuation of what they achieved on our behalf. And what I came to think of is this dual act of remembering is, I believe, at the very heart of our readings this morning as we continue our studies together in Luke's Gospel. So as we set the scene for that incident that Luke was writing about, we see that Jesus and the disciples wanted to leave all the crowds behind, to have some time together and to recharge their batteries. So they left the area of Galilee, where Jesus had been administering, and set off towards Mount Hermon with its snow-capped peaks. And this was in the region of Caesarea Philippi, as Matthew and Mark tell us, and I shall be drawing from their accounts as well as those of Luke. And after several hours walking in the hot sun, they stopped by a stream and drank from the water which was still ice-cold from the mountain streams. I know I've been there, and I expect many of you have as well. The water is the most delicious you could imagine. And they settled down for a picnic. And after lunch, Jesus wandered off a little way from the others to find a quiet place where he could pray. And when he came back, he had a question to ask the disciples. And the question was this, who do people say that I am, he asked. In other words, what's the word on the street amongst the crowds of people who are continually following him? And the disciples by this point have been with Jesus for about two years. So they had plenty of time to think about the question, to talk among themselves, and to listen to what people were saying as they mixed regularly with the crowds who wanted to be near to Jesus. And from their answer, there seems to have been a growing consensus that he was one of the prophets. For all the individuals named come into this category. And earlier on in Luke chapter 9, we see Herod ask a similar question and get very similar answers. John the Baptist is mentioned. So too is Elijah, the prophet who didn't die, but was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. For many people, this was an expectation that he would return in the Messianic age. And still others thought he might be one of the great Old Testament prophets. Say, someone like Jeremiah. He, like Jesus, was a prophet of judgment, declaring God's impending destruction of his own nation and therefore opposed and persecuted by its leaders. For as we see, people at that time, as now, had a view about Jesus. And these answers were pretty much what he was expecting. But of course, this was a preamble to what he was really after for he needed to prepare the way for a much more important question, and one that echoes down the years from that point onwards. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? And in the original, there is great emphasis on the you. Who do you say that I am? And not surprisingly, no one said anything. They knew him so well. They'd lived with him for a long time now, sharing food and shelter, witnessing the miracles, seeing the healings, hearing the teaching, and discussing long into the night what it all meant. They had so many memories on which to base a decision. But it had now come to the crunch. Who exactly was he, this Jesus? And all at once they felt very shy of him. And no one wanted to be the first to speak. Except Peter. Peter would always be ready to plunge in. And he acted as the disciples' spokesman. And he said what the others were almost certainly thinking. You, he said, you are the Christ. The words tumbling over themselves in his excitement. The son of the living God. And even as Peter said it, he knew that this was true. This Jesus whom they knew so well was the son of God come down to live as a man among them. And this was a great moment for Peter and one he would always remember, and not least for what happened next. For this is a crucial moment in the gospel story. From now on, the emphasis would be very different. By his words and his actions up to this point, Jesus enabled the disciples to build up a picture of who he was, to build on the memories of the previous two years. And now that the penny had dropped and that they had public knowledge who they believed him to be, Jesus begins to tell them the nature of his mission and the implications for them. And there'll also be a geographical switch away from Galilee in the north, where most of Jesus' public ministry took place, towards Jerusalem and what would wait for him there. And to help them in their understanding, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which was his most common title for himself, and is never used by anyone else. And it occurs 81 times in the Gospels. And he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is pictured as a heavenly figure, who in the end times is entrusted by God with authority, glory, and sovereign power. And Jesus here identifies himself as the Son of Man, the Messiah who must suffer at the hands of the rulers and authorities. He must be rejected, killed, and on the third day to rise again. And as Matthew and Mark tell us, This was altogether too much for Peter. Having acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, this was what he was not expecting to hear. So he took Jesus to one side and he began to rebuke him. Suffering and rejection had no place in Peter's idea of who the Messiah was. He anticipated some great earthly victory and glory. And he was also certainly not expecting Jesus' reaction to him either. Words which would sear into him and eventually be recalled after the events of Easter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the thing of God, but the things of men. Peter's attempt to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross held the same temptation Satan gave at the outset of Jesus' ministry, which explains his reaction and his severe rebuke. Peter and the others still had an awful lot to learn, and Jesus begins to spell out the implications of his words. For as Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man... He fills it with fresh meaning along the lines of the suffering servant we read about together in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By this time, Peter and the other disciples must have been reeling as they tried to take in the enormity of what it was that Jesus was saying. They needed to completely change their view of Messiahship and their view of him. The enormous paradigm shift this required would only really begin a year later after the resurrection, and probably not until Pentecost, when filled with the Holy Spirit, that this at long last made sense. But Jesus hadn't finished, as he switches the focus away from himself, and onto them, and all of those who would follow him. As he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves, And take up their cross daily and follow me. And Jesus here is not using cross bearing to describe the human condition of carrying some burden through life. I'm sure we've all heard these words used out of context, often referring to trivial problems. Well, we all have our crosses to bear. It was much more comprehensive than that. And the people Jesus was speaking to would have known exactly what he meant. Under the Roman occupation, crucifixion was a common form of execution. And the sight of men on a cross was part of everyday life, as hundreds have been killed in this way in the Galilean region as the Romans ruthlessly and cruelly dealt with any form of dissent and opposition to their rule. And Jesus is helping us see that if we identify with him, then we must be prepared to share in the fate that he outlined for himself. This sort of discipleship, to deny yourself and take up your cross, is not the result of an easy compliance, but of a deliberate and irrevocable choice. For cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving our whole life over to following him. And if these words about taking up the cross came as a shock to them, so too does the follow-up. For as he would experience resurrection, so shall we if we give our lives wholeheartedly to following him. For as he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Think of the rich fool. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. And herein lies the great paradox of the Christian life. If we clutch our lives wholly to ourselves, protecting it against all others, asserting our own rights, needs and privileges, we will lose it, for this isn't how life is meant to be. If, however, we acknowledge that life is not ours by right, that all is privilege and a gracious gift from God, and is to be lived in the love that the gospel reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it completely. So when you understand it like that, you realise you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. For even if we could have all the riches that the world has to offer, we would ultimately lose it all and leave it behind. But if we look outside of ourselves and give ourselves to the love of others and of God, that is the way of true freedom and leads to resurrection in this world and into the next. Jesus here is facing all those who would follow him with a fundamental choice. Is our allegiance to him or to the world? This time in Caesarea Philippi was a watershed moment in the lives of those first disciples. One I'm sure that they will continue to remember. For now that they had acknowledged who Jesus really was, the journey to Calvary could now begin. But this wasn't just something for their memory bank. It called from them a response and a need for action. They would always remember the question Jesus asked because it struck at the core of who they were and who in Jesus they would become, who do you say that I am? And there is probably no question that is more important. And as such, it has resonated down the years. It is a question that Jesus asked of people today. It is direct and personal and it demands a direct answer. Who do you say that I am? For if we reply as Peter did, are we prepared for the consequences and ready to identify ourselves with Jesus in the world that we live? For if and when we do, we will discover the joy of life in all its fullness that Jesus came to bring.